Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, CFA and Senior Vice President at Harbor Capital Advisors, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. On episode three of the podcast, we talk to Richard Barone, chairman of Arch Eagle Family Office. In this episode, special co-host and former podcast guest, Ben Makovic, joins me as co-host to talk with Richard about his long and distinguished investment career, including going to college in Washington, D.C. during the 1960s, beginning his professional career in the 1970s amidst the many challenges of that decade, and the several notable investment firms that Richard founded here in Cleveland. We also dive into Richard's experience with a now well-known window at the U.S. Capitol building, his investment discussions with the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, in the 1970s, and his hobby of collecting porcelain art. I hope you enjoy this engaging discussion with one of Cleveland's most well-known investors. Richard, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I am pleased to be here. Yeah, just to jump right in, let's talk a little bit about your growing up in Cleveland. I believe you grew up in South Euclid. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. A long, long time ago, I was born on a street called Fair Oaks in South Euclid. It was a brand new house. South Euclid was kind of a backward little city with a couple of old houses and a grandiose plan to develop it into a whole community. So my parents decided to move there. I was born there, and the rest is history, of course. Back then, was that almost the country? Was that getting out to, was, was that a suburb? Or? It was almost the country. As I said, there were a few old houses up and down some of the main avenues in South Euclid, but basically all of the side streets, which were starting to be poor, had no houses on them. Sure. Much different than today. The suburbs have moved out a little bit. So tell us, did you go to school in South Euclid or, or where did you attend kind of elementary through high school? Yeah, my recollection is I attended a school called Victory Park School, which was up on Mayfield Road near Green. And I say I attended Victory Park School. I hardly attended any classes for kindergarten or first grade. In fact, my mother had to bring me in to be tested before they let me into second grade. But, you know, back in those days, you didn't learn much in first grade except addition and subtraction. And I did that pretty much on my own. And by the time I got to second grade, it was multiplication and division. And I decided to participate. So my recollection is I really started school in the second grade. Sure, sure. And then where did you attend high school? Well, I went to Gilmore Academy. My parents believed that in order to be successful in this world, they were they were both second generation, close to first generation Americans. My father never got past the second grade. His father died during the Spanish flu of, of 1917. 
My mother actually graduated at the age of 16 from Heights High. Through the years, my father would always act as the smartest one in the family, and my mother would let him get away with it. (laughs) I remember my father reading newspapers, and he could hardly read, but he would sit there and force himself to read the newspapers. So I attended for second grade a school called Green Road School, which was torn down, then St. Margaret Mary, and then on to Gilmore Academy. My parents felt that they wanted the best education for me, thinking that there were only two professions that you could possibly have in life, and you were either a doctor or a lawyer. And so they were determined that I was going to be one of the two. So they wanted the best education they could find for me, and they picked Gilmore. Right. I am not a born and raised Cleveland resident. I am a transplant. And ever since moving here a few years ago, I've always heard about the east side, west side rivalry. Was it still prevalent back then or was it more or less? Or talk a little about that at that time in Cleveland's history. People on the east side, when I was growing up, never knew about people on the west side. No one ever crossed over. When people began using the airports more, east siders became more familiar with the west side. But my recollection is that the two hardly ever crossed, and they were essentially two different cities. That's so interesting. And now that I'm thinking of it, this is our third episode. And I think we've had three East Side guests on the podcast, which hopefully our our guests from the West Side will still listen. And I promise to have more West Side guests in the future because we don't want to perpetuate that rivalry. So you attended Gilmore at that time. And then where did you go to college for undergrad? Was it near Cleveland? Was it outside of Cleveland? Talk a little about that. It was outside Cleveland. Like a lot of high school students in the past and today, they really don't have a firm idea of where they're heading. And until they get to senior year in high school, they're not even sure of where they want to go to college. And there are some exceptions, of course. I had no idea where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. So I came across or I picked my own method of making that decision. And that is I looked around the United States on a map and I said, what city do I want to go to college? What city would I like to be there? And Washington, D.C. came up. And so I said, where am I going in Washington, D.C.? And that's when Georgetown popped up. So that's how I picked a college. When I got to Georgetown, of course, in those days, Washington was still a sleepy little southern town. When you Georgetown was within walking distance of the White House, And if you went half a mile west of Georgetown, you would be definitely in the suburbs. The inner belt around Georgetown was only on the drawing board. And if you crossed over into Arlington on Key Bridge, the only thing in Virginia was a Marriott. So Washington was much, much, much smaller than it is today and definitely focused on its southern roots rather than its northern roots. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was in the 60s. It had to be a really interesting time in Washington, D.C. What did you kind of think about that time? Any parallels to today? And and how do you see the similarities and the differences? Well, when I got there, the Kennedy administration was coming in. So there were a lot of celebrities in and around Washington, and you'd spot them all the time. The night of the inauguration, walking down the streets in Georgetown and Embassy Row, There were parties going on. You almost felt like you could attend the parties. It was a very calm atmosphere. It was a different time with a different thought process than 
than you have today. You could never do the things today that you did in those days. During my years at Georgetown, I was doing some time-lapse photography. And if you remember the shots that were taken of the Capitol building on January 6th, there was a particular window that they entered into. I used to stand by either that window or one very similar to it while I was doing time-lapse photography. And one night, the window was partially opened, and I remember pushing it open and stepping into the Capitol building and walking down into the central part of the Capitol building. There was a cleaning crew around. Nobody seemed to pay any attention. And I didn't think it was a very big deal, so I got kind of bored, and I stepped out of the window and went on my way. But can you imagine doing that today? That's so interesting that the the capital and the city were that open at that time. You mentioned the southern roots of Washington, D.C. Obviously, the 60s, segregation was still going on and whatnot. Did you see any of that there? Like, What was that like there at Georgetown? I saw it all. The assassination occurred in my junior year, and we had the Bay of Pigs invasion. We had the conflict with the Soviet Union, missiles in Cuba. Went through the whole gamut of international problems that were affecting the lives of people in this country. But Washington, D.C. was the focal point of all of that. So you felt very close to what was going on in the world. You didn't feel remote. You felt the president was talking to you when he was talking to the country. It was a different time and a different way of thinking than today. You graduate late 60s, early 70s. Talk to us a little about, well, one, your early career and and what that looked like for you personally, and then maybe expand on the time. I mean, I think a lot of people are making comparisons to the 70s and inflation. So we'd love to hear kind of about both those topics. I graduated on the four-year plan. And actually, I did five years in four. I would go to summer school. I would take extra credits during the school year. And by the end of my fourth year, I had achieved all of the credits and accreditation for a master's degree. And when I got my assignment at graduation, I was assigned to sit with the undergraduate. So I approached the college office and said, you got it all wrong. I've completed all my credits for a master's degree. And they said, come back tomorrow. I went back the next day. And they said, no, you're only an undergraduate. And I said, how would you make that calculation? Well, you you never applied to graduate school. And I said, now, let me understand this. You're telling me that I now have to apply and take all those courses over again. (laughs) And I was very frustrated. And so I went and I sat down with my counselor who had helped me through a master's degree and was bemoaning my situation. And he asked me, he said, well, where do you want to get your PhD? And I had no intention of getting a PhD at the time. I was happy where I was, and I was ready to go out and make my way in the world. And I said, well, why not? I'd like to go to the University of Chicago. At the time, Milton Friedman headed up the econ program there. And he was sort of one of my heroes, a monetarist. But I went back to my dorm and was prepared to sit with the undergraduates And the next morning, the phone rang, and we only had one phone in the whole building. And I went down, picked the phone up, and the person on the other end of the line said, this is Milton Friedman's secretary. He'd like to invite you into his PhD program. 
So I'm probably the only one in the country that got into the University of Chicago without ever applying. But I couldn't get through the program because they were drafting people that were in graduate school at the time. And then they began drafting men that weren't married and then began drafting men that were married but had no children. So I was expecting to get married at some point, but I wasn't going to bring my wife to South Chicago at the University of Chicago. So I attended Northwestern for a quarter and then dropped out of the program and began working in the brokerage industry. And so in the 70s, you had inflation going on, maybe similar, maybe different to what was taking place over the last couple of years. How do you think about the two time periods? Yeah, inflation was in those days considered one of two types. Either it was a demand pull or cost push. You don't hear those terms so much today because there isn't a real defined way of defining inflation except to throw a whole bunch of things into a bag, shake it up and say, this is why we have inflation. But in those days, it was one or the other. I sort of led an argument in undergraduate and graduate school, arguing that the best rate of inflation was 2%, while most of the professors there at Georgetown, in particular a a professor by the last name of Dobriansky, fought real hard arguing that inflation should be zero and not 2%. My thinking was twofold. At 2%, you were definitely out of the territory of deflation or depression. You were clearly in the territory of growth. Also, 2% inflation, there was more of a tendency to build inventory and hold inventory by most corporations. We had just come off of, I shouldn't say just, but World War II was still in the minds of most of the professors there. The Korean War, we were looking to Southeast Asia now as a potential area of conflict, potential war there. And so the cost of war then at a 2% inflation rate could be spread out over a number of years among the entire population. In other words, 2% over 10 years is about 11 or 12% inflation. And that would take care of a lot of the expenditures that you would have during the wartime. So I had very strong opinions about inflation, the target rate being 2%. And of course, today, and I have taken no credit for it at all, that the target rate is set at 2% for a variety of reasons, including the ones I just mentioned. So I'm going to say I won that argument. After 50 years, I won. <laughs> Actually, 60 years. <laughs> do you still think 2% is the right rate? Or? Yeah, I still do. I still think 2% is the right rate. Okay. Right. And when I went to school in talking about not only inflation, but the kind of analysis that economists used, it was mainly Keynesian analysis. In other words, The way you manipulate the economy is through government spending. And this was pretty much set in stone. The monetarists like Milton Friedman were in the background. They were trying to make their case, but it wasn't sticking. And it wasn't until a number of years later where monetary theory began to take over. And of course, today, monetary theory is the theory of how you control the economy. Raise and lower interest rates, raise and lower M1 and M2, the money supply, These are ways of manipulating the activity in the economy to get the result you want. No one today is serious about 
Keynesian economics. They're still there. It's still in the background. It still can be talked about, but not in any serious way. Maybe the million dollar question, do you think the Fed is going to get inflation down given their interest rate increases? What were your thoughts? I think the Fed can get inflation down, and it depends on how dead set they are in doing it. It's going to be very difficult. Obviously, if you keep sending money out to people, as we did during the pandemic, or spending money that you just don't have, and talking about government spending as a way of controlling inflation. I mean, this is all ridiculous. You can't borrow money and spend it and expect that it won't have any impact. I mean, look what happened in the last few years. You've had the government send out COVID money. People got the money. They decided they didn't want to work very hard. Well, if you don't work, you don't produce anything. And now you got money. And you so you have a combination of demand pull and cost plus. It's confusing. It's hard to define today why we have inflation. And you can't define it. It's hard to cure it. But I think if the Fed sticks to what it's doing, inflation will definitely come down. Sure. It's really interesting. Well, maybe getting back to your early career, you know, you said you started off in the brokerage business. Did you do that somewhere outside of Cleveland? Or is that when you moved back to Cleveland to kind of start your professional career? It was only in Cleveland. I started with a small regional firm called Hayden Miller. Back in those days in the mid to late 60s, there were 30, probably 40 regional brokerage firms, small firms here in Cleveland. And they would pop up and disappear quickly. Over the years, of course, they've all disappeared. But in those days, there was a lot more underwriting of small companies and a lot of small regional firms that would pick up these companies and bring them public. Cleveland had almost 40 of them. And I started with one called Hayden Miller. I got fired from Hayden Miller, I must admit. I came in as a broker in a room of 40 salesmen, and they had branch offices with another 40 salesmen. And the sales manager, of course, was the leader of the group. And he would tell you every Tuesday morning what to buy and what to sell. And so as time went on, my background was more in terms of an analyst. Even though the focus was economics, I picked up a lot of business courses along the way. And so I was digging into the balance sheet and the income statements, and a group would form around my desk after the salesman would give his talk. And the salesman noticed that I was talking to the other salesman about what I liked and what I didn't like. And so he called me into his office and he told me very clearly, he said, I'm the sales manager. I'm telling them what they should know. And so I said, fine, I didn't have any problem with that. But the next Tuesday, the group formed around my desk again. And I was hard put not to say anything, didn't know what to say, had to say something. I mean, I didn't want to appear like I didn't know any, I couldn't give them any information. And the group dissipated. Sales manager calls me in. He says, Barone, strike two. <laughs> Needless to say, strike three was right around the corner and I got <laughs> fired from my first job. What was your methodology back then? What would make you like a security over another? What, what kind of analysis were you doing? What were you thinking about back then? 
A great deal of the offerings were new offerings. So there was a prospectus included with most of what we were doing. And I would go through the prospectus and look at the income statement. It was balance sheet income statement analysis. It was simple stuff. Most of the other people in the room were good salesmen, but they had no background, at least in those days, they had no background in finance. Brokers would get hired because of their sales skills, not because of their analytical skills. Well, I I came into the firm as the youngest person in the firm out of 80 people. I was 22 and the next youngest person was 29 or 30. So Hayden Miller felt they were doing me a real favor by hiring me at that time. And they had no problem firing me just as quickly. So I read your background before the interview and you started multiple investment firms. When did that start or when did that did you get that entrepreneurship bug and start that first firm? Yeah. So I had a, a fairly good degree of success uh, uh, as a broker, ended up at a firm called JN Russell, where I got promoted and headed up the investment analysis area. JN Russell was a more aggressive firm. I remained a broker for a number of years, although I used to write research reports for them. And over time, things in the market after 1968 became very, very difficult. The markets were difficult. Uh, 73, 74 were really bad years. Probably 1974 was the worst year in the market that I ever experienced. But prior to that, uh, 71, 72, it became clear that the industry was heading for negotiated commissions. In fact, they actually set the date at May 1st, 1975, at that point in which commissions would be negotiated. So I calculated that up until that point, most individuals and even a number of institutions looked at the commission fee as including investment advice, as well as a transactional fee. It was all rolled into one. And when commissions became negotiated, it would separate out. There would be a price you'd pay for the investment advice and a price you'd pay for the execution. Well, I assumed that was all going to happen on May 1st, 75, and it really took 20 years after that to totally unfold. But it was true. I started the investment advisory firm called the Maxis Investment Group in 1973. And by 75, when commissions became negotiated, I began charging a management fee for the work I was doing. There was only one other firm, small firm in town that was doing that. Today, all of the broker dealers are gone, but there's lots of people managing money. And of course, commissions are essentially zero today. I think you received an interesting phone call around this time in the early 70s. Yeah, actually, I made the phone call. I don't want to put it the other way, but I had read an article in Forbes, a guy named Warren Buffett, who had decided in 19, late 60s, early 70s to get out of the market. And of course, he was a value investor or classified as one. And I looked at myself as a value investor. So I picked up the phone and gave him a call. He picked it up at the other end of the line. I think this was 71. And I talked to him for a while, told me the reasons he thought the market was overpriced and there weren't any good values around. Didn't think anything about it. But in 1974, when the market really hit its depth, 
I thought I'd give him a call again, which I did. I called him in the summer of 74. I think I had to go through a secretary at that time, but I even now I, I'm not sure I did. And he told me in the summer of 74, it's not like he called the bottom, but he said to me, I think stocks are worth buying now. And I said, are you saying the market's going to go up? He said, no, no, just the stocks are cheap. They should be bought. And in October, the market hit its bottom in 74, and it's been mainly up since that time. So I can verify that Warren Buffett is for real. <laughs> That's good to know. He's done okay for himself, as you have. I think back and I say to myself, geez, if I had just put all my clients into Berkshire Hathaway and bought it myself, I could have retired then. <laughs> Any thoughts on him kind of wading into the more growthy areas of the market now? I know there's been some commentary and some talk about, okay, he used to be maybe a little deeper value. Now he's you know buying shares and, and maybe more growthy companies. Any, any, any thoughts there? Well, I still think he's a value thinker. He's buying, obviously, Occidental Petroleum, which is the true traditional value security, but also buying Apple, which he looks at as not so much high technology anymore, but as dominating an area of the market that is not going away or is not going to undergo significant changes to the effect that it's going to Apple will have struggled to stay in business. He looks at Apple like he looked at the railroads, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. So I still think he's a value investor and still thinks along those lines. Sure. I think you could argue that Apple to this day is maybe more resemble of a consumer staple than anything. I mean, I know when I get that little notification on my phone, to, do I want $2 for storage per month? I don't want to click it, but I do click it and I, I'm not going to get rid of it. So that's an interesting take. So you know, you've been involved with quite a few companies over the years, but one I thought that was interesting from your background, a resort destination, a winter resort destination close to here. Talk a little about your involvement with Peak and Peak. Yeah. So when I was at J.N. Russell, they did an underwriting, underwrote a public offering of Peak and Peak Recreation. It was at a time when the market was getting very soft. I don't remember the exact year. The underwriting was supposed to be in the four or five million dollar range, certainly small by today's standards. But back then, it was just enough for Peak and Peak to finish its hotel and put all the pieces in place for a first-class destination resort. Well, instead of raising four or five million dollars on the offering, they only raised a million and a half. And they went to Bank of New York for a short-term loan for two and a half million, which they got. So they got their four million dollars. The hotel was finished. It was a six-month loan. I don't know what they thought was going to happen after six months. But after six months now, the company's public, Bank of New York called its loan, $2.5 million. So six months after going public, Peak and Peak went into receivership. I sort of wondered, what was Peak and Peak about? That the stock would go from $5, where it was, down to a dollar, and the company go into receivership. So I took a trip up there. And I'm not a skier, but I sort of hung around the ski lifts, and I noticed that the individuals collecting the lift tickets, the money for the lift tickets, there was no cash register. The money was going in their pocket. And I thought that very strange for a company that was in receivership, that they didn't have a better 
system of accounting for the funds. So I went to the board of directors or requested the board of directors meet with me that I would try to help them get out of receivership. And I sat around the boardroom and I said, look, I've bought 15% of peak and peak in the market for a little over a dollar a share. It's worth a lot more when you look at the value of the land and all of the assets. You need to get out of receivership. And the board agreed. They all nodded and said, yeah, we need to get out of receivership. I said, well, let me try to get you a $2.5 million loan with a long-term loan so that you can pay it off over time and then put some technology in place so that when people buy lift tickets, it's accounted for and you know how much you can pay back. And so I went through the process and I said, if you do it, I'd like 10% more of peak and peak. And they all agreed enthusiastic about it. So I brought the Cleveland Trust down there. They went in, looked around. We went through the numbers, went through everything. I spent a lot of time with it. Cleveland Trust approved a $2.5 million loan. I was excited. I went back to the board and I said, I got the loan. Everything's going to be just fine. And they looked at me. They said, step out of the room. I stepped out of the room. They called me back in and they said, we're turning it down. I said, why would you turn it down? I did exactly what you wanted, got you out of receivership. Now you're a going concern. Nope, we're turning it down. Well, what was my conclusion? My conclusion is they wanted to stay in receivership. You come to your own conclusions about why. So I went back to my office and made a tender offer for the whole company. And as I was collecting the shares or the bank was collecting the shares in the tender offer, two fairly wealthy individuals, brothers, stepped in and bought a private placement from the company. They bought 40% of Peak and Peak with new money, which precluded me from taking control. Okay, that's the way things are. That's the way things work. The stock had gone up. I was in a profit position. And I looked out my window one day, and I don't know why I was looking out the window. This 15-year-old Buick pulled into my parking lot and smoke was coming out the tail end, and two guys got out of it, and they showed up at my office door, and I invited them in, told me who they were. They were the two people that bought the 40% of Peak and Peak, and they had signed a an agreement not to acquire anymore, a standstill agreement. And so they said, they came into my office, and they said, we'd like to buy your stock, because I have still had the 15%. And I said, you can't. You signed a standstill agreement. The two of you signed it. And he said, yeah, but we have a third brother. And he didn't sign anything. So <laughs> I, I said, now we're in negotiations. So the third brother showed up and we negotiated. I think I got $7.5 at that time for the stock. I thought it was worth a lot more, but it was my first deal. And I was happy it turned out so well. That's interesting. Richard, you have so many great investment stories from your career, but one that always stuck out was your negotiation with Marty Whitman and how that ultimately became Third Avenue? Yeah. So over the years, I began to specialize in closed-end funds. In fact, in 1991, I did a white paper for Morningstar, which they use that analysis today in their presentation of closed-end funds. So I don't remember the exact year, but I'm going to say it was in the 1980s. Merrill Lynch came out with a closed-end fund. At the time, the markets were tough. And even for Merrill Lynch, 
they only were able to raise $7 million. Well, if you understand closed-end funds, the shares trade freely in the market, so the shares can sell above or below their actual net asset value. And in this case, the shares immediately went to a discount. I believe the discount was up over 20%. And I began buying the shares, hoping that I was going to get control. And I had bought probably close to 15% when my attorney called me. And he said, you know, there's another guy in New York, and he gave me the name, Martin Whitman, that has 10%, and he's been buying it. I said, well, my God, we've got 25, 30% together. So I got in the plane and went up, up to New York. And I said, look, either I buy your shares or you buy mine. And there he was. I walked into his office, and he was in tennis shoes, and his feet were up on his desk. And the whole time I was talking to him, he didn't take his feet off his desk. So I'm all dressed up. And I spent maybe 10 minutes with him and walked out. He said, I have no interest at all. So I walked out, got in a plane, came back to Cleveland. Over the weekend, I think it was Sunday night, I get a call. He's in Chicago. And he gives me a call and he says, okay, I'll buy your stock. I said, okay, we just need to talk price. He says, I'll give you a 5% premium. Well, I was buying a 25% discount. I was all ears. So the next morning, I called him up and I said, here, you buy all the shares. I don't remember the price at the time and sold him all of the shares. And so now he had 25% interest. I find out a few weeks later, he changes the name to Third Avenue Fund. So obviously, you've had a storied investment career, number of firms in and around the Cleveland area. I think for our listeners, probably the one they know off the top of their head or have heard before is Ancora. So can you talk to us how you started Ancora and your relationship with that firm? Sure. So I started the Maxis Investment Group. Let's go back there in 1973 and built it into a, I think it was the largest firm in Cleveland at the time. One of the largest firms in Ohio may have been the largest. I'm not sure. And around 1999, 1998, we had 50 or 60 employees. And Fifth Third Bank was interested in acquiring Maxis. It was a good time. Investment advisors were going at high multiples. And I got a very good price from Fifth Third Bank. All of my other partners agreed it was a good deal. And we sold the firm to Fifth Third Bank. Well, I was, as the CEO they didn't need a CEO. So they weren't interested in keeping me at Fifth Third Bank, but they wanted my other partners who were in sales and marketing. So I stepped out of the picture. I continued to manage a couple of the mutual funds we had. I managed them for Fifth Third for a while until they finally called me up and said, we're paying you too much. I said, well, what's the cost for a four and a five-star fund? I mean, what are you going to pay? And they said, well, we can hire people for 75000 a year to manage those funds. I said, fine, go ahead. So now they went to three-star and two-star funds. I always like to talk like that, <laughs> wave my own flag. <laughs> but the bottom line was they did not put any restriction on me in terms of beginning a new investment advisory firm. So I actually put a firm together. I called it Ancora because Ancora is an Italian word meaning again or once again. So I called it Ancora, started the firm in 2002. 
was going to keep it as kind of a friends and family firm until some of my partners began leaving, my old partners began leaving Fifth Third and wanting to come back to work and do it over again. So I got excited about that, at least initially, and agreed with them that I was getting older. I was the oldest of all the partners and that I would sell them my controlling shares over a period of 10 years, which by 2013, I had done that. And so after 2013, I began taking a minor role at Encora, but we had built the firm up to where it was fairly substantial again. Fred DeSanto, who was my right-hand man, took over the firm. Fred is a good entrepreneur in that sense. He had all the skills to build a firm, and I always depended on him to stimulate a lot of the business in any event. So I was happy with the transition of management, and I was happy to take a minor role more along the lines of my background, which was investment management. The issues then became, well, who's going to be the chief investment officer? And I had no interest in any of that. And in fact, I was managing several of the mutual funds that we had started there at Encora. In 2009, one of my funds placed the second in the country in terms of performance. And between 2010 and 2020, the funds I managed were all five-star. Actually, Morningstar gave me a call, or maybe I called them, inquiring, has this ever been done before? And they got back to me and they said, no, you're the only person that's ever managed multiple funds over a 10-year period, all at five-star. So I had a strong track record. The problem was my track record was conflicting with the regular work Encora was doing. And so they were not interested in having the money flow into these funds because then I'm back in the picture and not stepping into the background. So we decided to part ways three or four years ago. Quite a storied investment career. Thanks for sharing all that. And that your perspective has been really incredible. So thank you. Maybe now we'll transition to, I think it's a favorite part of the show, at least it is for me, rapid fire questions about you personally. Are you ready for this? Okay. I'll give it a try. <laughs> Do you have a nickname? No. Favorite hobby? It has to be collecting American porcelains because I've put together and heading up the Museum of American Porcelain Art here in Cleveland. Favorite recipe to cook? Does it go back to your Italian roots? It does. I cook almost anything Italian, but my children and grandchildren definitely come to see me. And maybe the only reason when I make my red sauce, a lot of Italians claim that, but they won't come over unless I prepare that and then give them a batch to take home with them. <laughs> That's great. Favorite investing slash finance book that you would recommend to someone? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, there's so many books out there. I have to say, I used to read Graham and Dodd's book constantly once a year from the time I was in college, but I can't say that's my favorite book. I'm going to pass on that one. I might want to think about that. Okay. If it pops in your head, feel free to just shout it out. We should call this the hot seat. It's tough. Favorite travel destination? Well, when I had sold the Maxis back around the year 2000, I did a lot of traveling around the world. Of course, I've been to Italy 20 or more times. I've got cousins there and we get together all the time. 
But one of the most interesting trips I ever took was through Vietnam, North and South Vietnam around the year 2001, 2002. I have to say that was my favorite trip. And I encourage anyone that wants to get a real glimpse of another culture to do that. Favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? My favorite lunch spot has always been Giovanni's. But since I moved into my office, I've been here five years. It's further, much further away. So I go to Capitol Grill mostly for lunch, but Giovanni's always serves a a good lunch. What's your favorite way to stay active fitness-wise or just to stay healthy? Any favorites there? I try to stay healthy by not hurting myself with exercise. (laughs) Back when I was 20 years ago, I was in great shape. I would hike up in the Dolomite Mountains in Italy. I was a good mountain climber. Nothing real dangerous, but I was in great shape. But I would say the last 10 years, actually, when I I had turned 70, I was into good exercise, but I was finding out it was actually hurting me to lift weights. My joints were starting to hurt. So I said, who needs this? I said, I'm not going to play football anymore. Of course, I never did. So if I'm not going to be doing that, what do I really need to do? All right, get out and walk, keep yourself in decent shape, eat right. And I tried to do all those things but nothing special. Are you a sports fan? A Cleveland sports fan? I'm always a Cleveland sports fan, but I much prefer to sit in the loge than out in the stands. And most people would say the opposite. Yes, I'm a Cleveland sports fan. I have a lot of problems with the way sports are going today, the attitude of the players, the attitude of management. So I'm, I'm upset with sports today, but I like a good game. What is your most memorable Cleveland sports moment? I would say it was the moment that, and I'm trying to remember the players, but we were headed to the Super Bowl if we had won the game with Denver, and we dropped the ball going into the end zone, and they recovered, went down the field and scored. There's a name they've given it, the fumble or the whatever they call it. That's baked into my memory because it was such a disappointing So disappointing, thinking that the game's almost over and we're winning. Last but not least, favorite thing to do in Cleveland when you're here? My favorite thing is going to my museum, or the museum that I started, going to Valario's on Friday night. I'm a pretty simple guy. (laughs) That's great. Well, Richard, that's the end of the hot seat or the lightning round there. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. It's been an enjoyable conversation and thanks for coming on. Well, I enjoyed being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.